Well, it's recorded, but we've lost your video. Can you turn your camera on and off? Yeah, sorry, I lost you for a second there. Yes, okay. So anyway, Zach, good to see you. Good to see you too. Been a, been a while. You, you ask a question about what is right view. And uh, the, the immediate answer is, is that that's the right question. Um, because uh, one's right view uh, is basically what actually is going to be changing. Is our uh, way of looking, our way of uh, viewing, and the way we hold views. In that regard, we've got two different definitions of the word view. One is viewpoint, worldview, uh, underlying attitude, that kind of thing. And then uh, the other one is the word view in the sense of viewing or looking or investigating right here in the here now. And that um, often that's missed. There's a subtlety in the sense of the shift the change of the word. Hmm. Um, uh, the Buddha in Sutta number 117, first off, uh, says that he is going to teach the student right, noble unification of the mind. Okay, how to get the mind collected together and organized. And so that's uh, then uh, expanded to uh, Sama area Samati, which actually then means right organization of the mind, which means that the mind, the, the, uh, the, the things that are needed are there. It's almost like that the best way of constructing a house is to have the full bill of materials arrive before you get started construction. Because if you start constructing and you don't have all the materials that you need, you're going to have to stop construction to go get those things. And so um, in that regard, when the mind is completely organized, it, it's unified and it's functioning correctly because it's got all of the parts there functioning correctly. So the way that we bring the mind to that organized state is basically um, the practice of bringing these factors together to bring the mind into first jhana because the bringing of the factors together to make the mind into first jhana is also the skills that are needed to bring in first jhana are the skills that are mentioned on the Eightfold Noble Path. That the Eightfold Noble Path is the intention and the skills that we need to bring the mind out of the first noble truth and all of the causes of suffering into the third noble truth. And there is a mechanism to do that. And that mechanism is the Eightfold Noble Path. 
or the method, okay? And, and then the actual method itself would be then called Anapanasati, which in the West has been uh, basically translated into the word meditation. Right. <laughs> but the word meditation originally meant something else completely than what we're doing. That in fact, what we're actually doing is uh, observation rather than contemplation. Okay, that most meditations have to do with, uh, oh, an object that we mull over in the mind. And what we're actually going to be practicing here is the observation of that mulling mind. <laughs> Uh, and, and so you can uh, you can understand the way that the word meditation is used when we hear things like vespers and prayer and uh, let us say solemn music that has normally a theme. And so they would take an object of meditation to contemplate, such as the Trinity. Or uh, the compassion of Mother Mary or other things like that, that would be ideal states that we would mull over or think about. Another example would be to contemplate on the glory of God. Now, these things do have some value. It sure has some value when someone is contemplating on the glory of God rather than planning to rob a bank. <laughs> So relatively speaking, it's got great value. Yeah. <laughs> uh, because contemplating the glory of God is actually at least thinking about or contemplating something that uh, you would consider wholesome. All right. So uh, in this Getting the mind organized is another way to say it. Bhikkhu Buddha Das has used the word getting the mind fit for work. Now, what does that mean? Getting the mind fit for work means that now the mind is stable and it is free from, let us say, the junk or the filters, uh, the garbage. And that most of the meditations then, either the Mahasi or the uh, Choices Awareness of Adriana or Apat or any of the others will generally start with it the same way that the Christians do. And that is, is that they've got the mind full of stuff that they didn't have to maneuver around. Okay, this is also what would be called the dry meditation. The dry meditation is done when the mind still is subject to hindrances. To where the correct practice is when the mind is fit for work because it's free from the hindrances. And so how do we get the mind free from the hindrances is by seeing, by observing, by looking at a hindrance as a hindrance 
to see an obstruction as an obstruction, rather seeing it as, uh, let us say, a pile of crap merely to step over, because we keep stepping over that same pile of crap over and over again, it's better just to move it out of the mind. Hmm. Or if you think of it as kind of a filter, then the cloud and the filter is tidy. Yeah, you can see through the filter, but it's not really clear because of the stuff that's in the way in that mind moment. All right. And so uh, right noble viewing is then the skill to be developed of keep observing and keep looking. And at the same time, we're cleaning up the obstructions along the way. So let, let us say that I can't see into the house because the door is closed. And so I open the door and now someone's repositioned the furniture so that the television is blocking the way and I can't see into the room. So now I got to move the TV too. And then once I can get the TV uh, moved, now I can see that the other door of the room that I actually want to see in, it's closed too. So now we've got to open that door. So once we've opened a couple of doors and moved some furniture around, now we can really see clearly down to the end of the house. Okay, and some of these obstructions are really big, heavy-duty things like walls <laughs> that we construct in the mind. Right. So these these are the obstructions that we put in in there in the mind and then in meditation that's what we contemplate because that's what's there so we intend to contemplate something else we keep tend to get this interference thing happening so the correct practice is to begin to just the job is to keep throwing these hindrances out and throwing the hindrances out and throwing the hindrances out, leaving a mind then is that's stable. And so uh, the Buddha then talks about that he's going to introduce right, noble organization of the mind with its supports and features. And we have to understand that there's a difference between a support and a feature. You could say that the supports are the cause and the features are the result. In other words, once the mind is organized, once the mind is unified, once the mind is free from unwholesomeness, free from want, and is satisfied in the present moment, then there are certain features that show up. And what is that? Well, an example would be, it would be very unlikely if you were to harm someone or to rob them or to kill them or to take their wife away from them. If you don't want anything, if you don't want his wife, then why would you try to take her away? If you don't want his purse, then you would want to take it away. So these are the future features of the right organization of the mind, which most people don't understand. They begin with Buddhism, just like they begin with all the other uh, religions. And that is, we start with a set of rules, 
procedures, rituals, that all children are introduced to religion through religions and rule, through uh, uh, ceremonies and uh, rituals, that kind of thing. All right, and so those rites, rules, and rituals, especially the rules here, is what gets ingrained into the mind, and then these become part of the hindrances in the sense of we decide how things should be based upon the set of standards and rules that we put into the mind. And so correct observation, again, would be able to, one, to see the rules, that he is trying to follow, and sometimes he does it, and sometimes he doesn't. Sometimes he feels good when he's following the rules, sometimes he doesn't. And often when he can't follow the rules himself, now he becomes a big boss and wants other people to follow his rules, because he can't. And a good example of that is preachers. Or it's called hypocrisy, where you want other people to follow the rules that you can't yourself follow. And we don't even see that. In other words, when the mind is not fit for work, we cannot see our own hypocrisy. And so right noble view is to be able to see correctly what's really going on in the mind. And this is why the Buddha says that this is the support that starts first. So you have the supports and the features to go along with the right organization of mind. And so you can say that there are four supports and three features. The three features are uh, right speech, right behavior, and right livelihood. Those are the features of the Eightfold Noble Path. Those are the result of the path, not a causality. In other words, people put themselves into a set of rules. And it's possible that with those rules, they can remember and remember and look and see and use that set of rules in order to free themselves from all the rules. But that didn't happen. That's very, very unlikely to do. But an example of that would be um, Ajahn Chah's group of monks in Thailand. And what had happened was is that the uh, Thai people had, they had a duality in the sense of respect. When people came to Asia uh, working for the CIA, wearing business suits, having a lot of money, wanting to start businesses, those people had a very, very high status in the Thai society. But as soon as that guy dresses down and walks into a watt, now things get flipped around completely and the ties become completely chauvinistic. Oh, these Farang, they've got no morality. These Farang are not fit to be around. They don't know how to live like Thai people live, you see. All right. And because of that, when, uh, and it wasn't just Achan Cha, Achan Cha uh, consulted a lot of different monks to get what was going to be happening. And so when he started with Achan Samedo and then with the other monks that they started with uh, Wat Pabong and then moved to Wat Pananachat, 
one of the important things was is that these Western monks are going to have to prove that they can live up to the standards that the Thai people set mentally, which means that they've got to not only follow the rules of the Paddy Monk, they have to also follow the rules that the Thai people add on top of that in their own imagination about what the Paddy Monk rules should be. And that kind of puts a guy into a straitjacket. That robe becomes a straitjacket. And if the mind can fit into that straitjacket and follow the rules happily, it's liberating. It would be very much like when you've broken your arm, that it's a good idea to set it and then put it in a cast and then keep it still and let it heal. And so this is one of the reasons why in the Eightfold Noble Path is broken into three groups, Sila, Samati, Panya. And the Sila is first. If you can get someone to, fin to pitch into a very, very rigid set of rules and let him work within the confines of those rules while he is cleaning out his mind. In other words, he's very mindful with every act. He's very mindful with every word. He's very mindful with everything that happens. And in that regard, that builds that mindfulness up, which we'll talk about in a moment. But there's a different way that, than, than that that's taught. It does not have to be taught with Siva Samatipanya in the sense of one having to live a long, long period of time, months or years in a mental straitjacket but rather that understand that Siva can happen immediately. Just as soon as you close your eyes and sit down in a room by yourself, at that point in time, your Siva is perfect when it comes to morality, because you're not actually killing anyone. You're not actually harming anyone. You're not actually trying to get someone. You're not actually lying or anything like that, that you're in that moment your sila is perfect. And so that's the way that we are operating is, is that temporary is where I all of this about because everything is temporary. And so we don't have to have a long-term sila and then later a long-term samadhi before we begin to have wisdom, that we can start with wisdom right from the get-go if we understand the, right, the Eightfold and Noble Path correctly or the Eightfold Noble Method. So there is actually an Eightfold Path or an Eightfold Method that most people practice as an introduction to the Eightfold Noble Path, that one could even go so far as to say that one is actually not on the Eightfold Noble Path until the mind is noble. In this moment, And that's the trick. In this moment, when the mind is noble, then we're on the noble path. And when the mind is not noble, then we're back into the ordinary path of we need to get the mind uh, cleaned out. So that point about sila samati panya then is taken to you've got to have perfect behavior. Then you have to get the mind cleaned out. And that would also be called um, uh, 
being able to uh, uh, to get the mind stable, to get the mind where it is cleaned out, uh, and then uh, we would go for the third one was now we can see correctly. So in one of the sutras, number 24, it talks about purification of sila, then purification of the mind, and then purification of view. So what that means that when the mind is now uh, purified, then the view can be purified. And when the view is purified, now we're on the eightfold and noble, noble, noble path. Hmm. And when the mind is uh, not stable, then our view is not stable and therefore the view is not going to be noble. So the ordinary way of practice that does lead to the noble path can often take years, 10, 20, 30 years, depending upon our practice. In fact, I would say the baseline at that would be 20 years. And that 20 year baseline is, is when the, uh, the monk is merely going with the vinya, merely going with the patimal, merely going with standards of behavior, and he doesn't do any meditation at all. No meditation practices other than just being a monk for 20 years and he'll make it. So if it takes somebody 30 years, that means that whatever meditation practice they were having was actually hindering them from their own freedom. So if we consider it that way, then if we start uh, practicing from correctly, in the noble way, we get immediate results, get immediate benefits. Where the ordinary path may take 20 years to get benefits. So um, we begin now with that understanding of right noble view, but we can also underpin it by going back to the conceptual ideas of views and look at what is wrong view and what is ordinary right view. The wrong view that is held is that there is nothing like rebirth, reincarnation. There is no law of uh, gravity. There is no law of comma. There is no law of I'm sure should take care of and respect my elders or my parents that in fact, it's okay to go do anything that I want to do and get away with it. That one of the examples of that in the sutras would be that the guy can be on this side of the Ganges River and kill 500 cows. Now, the word 500, by the way, is used very often in the sutras, and, it, and we understand that is that that was a cliche in that language for just a large number, maybe an uncountable number. After it gets over a couple of hundred, it's not millions, but 500 is just a big crowd. Okay, so he kills a big crowd of cows on this side of the river, and then he goes to the other side of the river and kills 500 cows, and there's going to be no comic results. Okay, well, that's obviously not true. One of the comic results is you're going to have 500 dead cows on both sides of the river. They're going to stick things up pretty badly. 
Another obvious thing is that those 500 cows probably had human beings who were attached to those cows in the sense of I, me, and mine, and they're probably going to set up some resistance before even 500 cows are killed. So wrong view is basically I can get away with anything or that whatever the price is, it's worth paying so long as I get what I want. Mm which is the way that most children trying to begin life. We, be, we begin, humans begin life as animals, as barbarians. And that we have to be socialized. We're socialized in places like kindergarten and daycare. Right. In, okay. That the, the kid is socialized into learning to stand in line. They're socialized by tell, by cleaning up the room, by doing what they're told to do. And so this wildness gets put out of us and the way that that wildness is put out of us with the threat of, oh no, you can't get away with it. Which is now ordinary right view is the ordinary right view is no, you can't get away with it. We're going to have laws. We're going to have rules. We're going to have rituals to follow. We're going to have precepts. We're going to have cops. We're going to have tattletales. We're going to have teachers and principals and psychologists and an army with F-15s. <laughs> and if none of that works to convince you that you can't get away with invading uh, Ukraine, then we're going to add. You missed my joke. <laughs> no, I got it. It's crystal. You got it. <laughs> it just, it's, uh, maybe it's, it's real. <laughs> but yeah. That you can't get away with it. And the, the, we will add the top tier thing. If, if none of that stuff is going to prevent you, then we're going to hire a priest. So that we'll get you after you're dead. But you can't get away with it. This is basically now the law of comma that states that good action gives good result, give yeah, and bad action gives bad results. No longer how long it takes, or no matter what, there will be payback. Well, you know from childhood that that's not true. Sometimes you can get away with it. Sometimes you don't. You can also say that that uh, the wrong view and the way that the Buddha is talking about it in the sense that we can get away with it would be the progressive view. We want to change things. And we're going to have to go fight for it, but we will win. And the other team is the conservatives who says, no, you can't change things. We're going to keep it like it is. That's politics for you. <laughs> and neither one of them is uh, viewing or looking. Both of them are viewpoints or worldviews or concepts, conceptualizations, mental ideas, 
to where actual the word is should be used in our sense of noble feeling is that we're not interested in concepts or ideas that we, we see that stuff as hindrances to being able to see what's really going on right now. And so right noble viewing has the quality of wisdom. It has the quality of investigation. It has the quality of investigating the stakes that the mind is in, as well as the objects that the mind is in. It has the quality of investigating how our behavior affects our feelings immediately and how our behaviors and feelings affect our mental state. That there's not just the four foundations of mindfulness or the satipatthana of the body, the feeling, the mind, and the mind's objects, but rather we also have to begin to see the cause and effect and the cause and effect. That anxiety that can be uh, when one is quiet and looking because they've been practicing correctly, they can they can feel, experience, see whatever verb that you want. The anxiety that's in the body, which is actually a result of a new chemical imbalance, or let us say it's a long-lasting recurring uh, upset or imbalance, followed by homeostasis and then a, an imbalance. And that imbalance is when the body is getting prepared for something that it then does not do. Mostly that is fight or flight. That when fear comes up, in the old days, 100,000 years ago, when or 200,000 years ago, when fear came up, it was real fear because there was a real predator, real danger. Now, in our society, the fears that come up are almost always conceptual fears imaginary predators, like an email to the boss, or from the boss. So, um, the, this um, conceptualizations actually then in the mind and, and bringing on danger thoughts in the mind will then bring danger into the mind's chemical process, which then brings the chemicals. And so there's pituitary and penal glands. They're right there in the back of the head, right here and right here on both sides. And these guys are directly related, like with a, a very, very private telegraph pole wire, straight to the adrenaline gland. And not only that, but these uh, glands are controlled by another part of the brain, which is called the amygdala. And the amygdala where it's located is at the top and the back of the throat. It, it, when inside the human throat, there's a change from the mouth to where it changes to go down. It's that point right to there where the amygdala sits. And that's what controls um, the fear that is transmitted through, the, through this glandular system down to the adrenaline gland. Now, where is the adrenaline gland located? It's right on top of the kidneys. Why is the adrenaline gland associated with the kidneys and the liver? 
Well, guess where it's going to get its tiny secret ingredients? I mean, like McDonald's, the adrenaline gland has its own secret sauce. And where is he going to get the ingredients for that? Uh, is out of the trash bin of the liver and the kidneys. And he's going to manufacture that stuff and then send it out as signals into the bloodstream so that we get the body with enough energy and um, uh, let's say uh, adrenaline and all of that is pumped through the body. And here you are sitting at your desk with no place to run to, no place to hide and nothing to fight. But you still have all that adrenaline in the system. Or maybe not even sitting at your desk, you might be sitting in the meditation hall. That anxiety attack comes up. Why? Because we think ourselves into it. We literally talk ourselves into it. And it generally might have to do with that set of rules or standards that we were talking about. The shoulds, woulds, and coulds, or our rule base. And we're having a kind of a conflict with that in the sense that we're not able to live up to our own standards. That first is um, confronting most uh, beginning meditation students in the Goenka method when Goenka says, watch the breath. When the mind wanders away from the breath, never mind, start again and come back and watch the breath. And then when the mind wanders away from again, never mind, Come back to the breath, start again. Now, that never mind, start again is exactly what the students do not do. Because when they recognize that the mind has wandered away, they don't start again. They beat themselves up. They punish themselves. You broke the rule. You're supposed to be watching your breath. Oh, no, I have screwed up. And then they begin to have, pardon? I was going to say, yeah, the, I'm doing it wrong. Uh-huh, I'm doing it wrong. That's when the doubts come in, in the sense of, is this the right practice? Did I understand it correctly? Is the teacher bonkers? <laughs> is this stuff for real? I mean, how far into that stuff can we go in the sense of doubt? When in fact the actual instructions were, let's no, let's not get into that. Let's just come back and start again. That would be the right view. Would be never mind, start again, rather than wallow in failure for a split second or a split year. Okay, so now we're beginning to understand this, the, the quality of the right view is that it's investigatory and that we're going to be looking for something in particular. And what is the things that we're going to be looking for is the log jams, the roadblocks, the hindrances, the uh, obstructions that hinder us from being in the kind of mind state that we would be in if we knew how. In other words, what the actual practice of meditation is, is for you to begin 
to gain the skills to get into the mind state that you want to be in while you're developing the skill of figuring out what the mindset that you could be in if you really were skilled. In other words, if you knew how to feel, you would feel the way that you wanted to feel because you know how to feel. So that's what we're going to begin to practice is how can we make the mind begin to feel not uptight, not full of adrenaline, not all pumped up with anxiety or fears and bring the body to a state and then the mind to a state of rest and satisfaction and safety and security bringing the mind and the body into a state of comfort. Because if you had a choice, wouldn't you rather be having the mind safe and secure, or would you rather have the mind full of fear or think? Okay, rhetorical question. <laughs> would you rather the mind and the body and the feelings be in a state of relaxed comfort or would you prefer, for instance, to sit on a marble or a shoe? Relax, comfort. Yeah, okay. So, would you rather than be dissatisfied with someone coming to your door, or would you prefer to be satisfied when they come to the door? Satisfied. All right, so you're already knowing what kind of choices to make, safe, secure, and comfortable, and satisfied. So what we then need to do is to use that as the alternative, safe, secure, comfortable, and satisfied versus what is in the mind right now. And if that's not in the mind right now, that means that what is in the mind is hindering you from being in the state that you would prefer to be in. And so what that means is that we're going to remember to look mm. and to make that distinction, to see us hindrance as a hindrance. Thank you. Now, huh? Thank you. That's, that's crystal clear. All right. So now the question is, well, when do we do that? Right now. <laughs> That, well, actually, the correct answer to that is every time you remember to do it. And so that means then that this remembering to do it is a skill to be developed. And so this is the second item on the Eightfold Noble Method, because we've been harping now for 30, 39 minutes on right view without even talking about when to do right view. The answer is when you remember to do right view. Wakey, wakey, wake up and smell your own coffee or whatever you've got in your mug. <laughs> sure. That's so, the component, right? That's sati, mm -hmm. sati is the wake up process. To remember to be here now, to remember to look at what you're doing, to remember to stop with our conceptualizations and look at our conceptualizations. Begin to recognize, in fact, that in the beginning of, of practice, 
the conceptualizations that are in the mind are in the mind of a me, which means then that these are my thoughts. But when we begin to observe them, then we begin to separate the observer from the observed. And that begins to put some distance in there so that we can begin to see that these are just hindrances. They're not my thoughts. They're just hindrances that have been there from time to time based upon a set of prepositions of rules and regulations and things like that that keep us from being in the state that we want to be in. And if we can remember to look, now we can do something about it. And what we're going to do about it is now the third item on the Buddha's list, which is right noble effort. Right noble effort now is to throw that stuff out of the mind, the hindrance, whatever it is that's keeping you from being, uh, let us say, feeling safe and secure. We're going to throw that out of the mind. So if writing an email to the boss has gotten us upset and uptight, and throw that email out of the mind right now, if we remember to, and start having thoughts instead that are going to soothe us in a kind of a teasing way, maybe. This is why I would recommend for you to look around when you remember, and you can see that the mind is um, actually having a little bit of adrenaline or a little bit of a fear or a little bit of anxiety or anything like that. We can muse and look around. You know, there's no alligators on the floor. The room does not have a pile of snakes. There are no tarantulas on the keyboard. There are no grizzly bears in the closet, like some children think. There's no boogeyman under the bed. That in fact, if you look at it closely, you can recognize that we're actually having the habit of fear that we picked up as children. And that one of the ways that that happens when we're really, really little, if the society and the family and the, um, let us say, uh, the wealth of the family and all of that is such that the child is given his own rule, but maybe the baby's own crib or it's put in the crib to where in a more, um, let us call it uh, primitive society, on a more nurturing society, the infant is going to be able to remain in bed with its parents where he feels safe and secure and protected. But in the crib, he's all alone. And in the other room, he's not alone. He's got bears in the closet. He's got boogeymen under the bed. He's got monsters in his mind. Because we become afraid as children when they're not well cared for and well nurtured. And so we're lacking that nurturing that actually nurtures us in that uh, social part of the, the being that humans are social animals. I mean, as much as the United States wants to talk about rugged individualism, it just doesn't exist. We're not rugged individuals. We are tender social beings.
but we are raised as rugged individuals almost from birth. And so we we start early in being unnecessarily afraid. That our parents then make us afraid. If you don't do what you're told to do, you're going to get spanking. If you sash your grandpa, there's hell to pay. So that's where the fears get started. And those fears then are based upon a set of rules. If you do the wrong action, you're going to bear up under the wrong results. And so that's the mentality that we begin to have to try to socialize that young kid out of him being in the wrong view of a barbarian. I can do what I want to do and get away with anything into the socialization of we're going to beat your ass. <laughs> and so in the practice now, coming back to this present moment, that that whole quality of we're going to beat your ass actually now is a hindrance to us when we're not getting our ass beat. But in fact, here we are with nothing to do and no place to go and everything is comfortable and survive, and we still feel anxiety. Those are the kind of thoughts that we're having. And so we need to wake up to these thoughts, wake up and look at them, and then take the effort to tell ourselves no, you are safe. There are no crocodiles. There are no boogeymen. There is no one with a switch or a belt or a, a, a paddle or a fist or a hand or a knife that are going to harm us right now. We're safe right now. And if we keep telling ourselves that we're safe and keep recognizing in the reality of the moment by direct observation that we are safe, we begin to convince ourselves that we are safe. And then we begin to feel safe, which means now that adrenaline goes away, and we can relax and relax the body. Yeah, I would say that a lot of my fears are maybe long-term fears or existential fears. And, you know, they don't oh, necessarily... Hmm? The existential—they're just old habits. The existential is trying to discover the source of the fear. Why am I afraid? Rather than recognizing fear as a feeling that it gets uh, kicked, and we need to look at how the mind gets kicked off which is the waking process. So when our sati is very good, then we're awake to see what it was that kicked the mind into feeling straight unsafe and insecure. Could have been a thought. It could have actually been something like a mosquito bite, a sensation on the body. And we decided that we didn't like that sensation. And now all of a sudden, oh, here comes all the mosquitoes and I'll never survive a mosquito attack. That's what happens in the mind. And now we're paranoid about mosquitoes because we got one bite. 
the wisdom would say, hey, if one if one mosquito comes and you know it, then maybe it's time to put some citronella or a mosquito coil or close a window or do something because here comes some mosquitoes because that's the wise thing to do. But to begin to plot and hate mosquitoes and thinking about how can we eradicate all the mosquitoes in the world is a point of view of fear. Rather than the point of view of what can we do to be safe? So that's how we handle the fear is by feeling safe. Then there is no more fear. And there's a side point about that, and that is, is that um, uh, in the Pali, there is a word avaya, and actually the baya is fear. All right, and abaya means no fear, but it's been wrongly translated as fearless. Now, fearless actually is a, a, has a different use in English, and that is courage. In other words, there is fear, but my uh, mentality is going to be such that I can put on my battle armor and I can stomp out there on the field and defeat that enemy. Right? That's courage. That's uh, willingness to walk into the field of danger. Despite, despite. Despite the fear. Mm -hmm. In other words, it's the fight. Real fear is the flight. But we're either going to fight or we're going to flight when there is fear. What we're looking for now is not the fight. We're looking for it. In fact, the guy, when he is told the situation, he doesn't put on his body armor and goes to war. He sets dinner for the, for the perceived enemy because he's really just a guest, just a friend. That's where there is no fear. Fearlessness then is actually fear mixed with uh, other attitudes. We're looking for the state of being safe and secure because we will make different choices when we're safe and secure than we will uh, when we're attacked. And we have to defend ourselves. Okay. So, one, when you're attacked, you either run away from it, like the, the kid who, when he sees the bully coming, or sometimes they'll stand up to the bully, which is now the fight. And that's what we normally do is either fight or fight. But the third option, is to see things clearly. Oh, that bully's not dangerous. He's just my friend. And now I'm not afraid of him at all. So I don't have to fight with him and I don't have to run away from him. Now, and in fact, these bullies are from, ch from childhood where we were victims. We were little. We were in danger. And we had to respond to that danger by either fight or flight. But now, Zach, there's, there's nothing to be afraid of, except that old stuff in the head. And so now we can feel safe and secure. We can handle anything. 
I think the question that is arising is, is there an element of delusion there, you know, if the bully really does want to fight? Um, it depends upon how we handle it. In other words, he wants very badly for you to be afraid of him. Are you going to buy into it? Do you have to become afraid? I mean, this is exactly how uh, cops operate. When they stop you, they stop you in the attitude of a bullet. And they will continue with that and they will beat you down and they will make sure that they are the bully. And everybody responds to the cops. I mean, uh, in in the United States, uh, there's a lot of accidents. There's a lot of carnage on the highway. But most drivers are not afraid of having accidents because they know that they have something to do with the accidents. What they're afraid of is the cops. Is that not true for you? Which are you more afraid of, getting stopped by a cop or having an automobile accident? Mm, I think it, you're it, you're both. You're you're afraid of both of them, huh? <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, maybe maybe both. Okay. But yeah, no, typically, yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. So the point is, is that if people are afraid of the cops when they get stopped. That's already setting up a situation of a one up, a one down, and people are then, the question is, how are people going to manage their fear with the cops? Because some of them get, try to bully the cop back and uh, uh, start citing the law and tell him I'm a lawyer and you're doing the wrong thing and all of this kind of stuff and get into a fight with him, you know, at least at a verbal level. Others will actually get into a physical brawl with the cops. Yeah. Others are timid and afraid. Yes, officer. No, officer. I'll do what you're telling me to do, officer. And then sometimes when people are afraid, they'll make a, a fearful movement, which the cop will then inter, um, uh, assess as a, a, an aggressive movement. And then people get killed. And in fact, probably a really, really excellent example of that is the situation with George Ford. Have you ever seen uh, anything about that? Okay. Yes. George Floyd, when he got uh, uh, stopped by the cops, he was freaked out because he thought that they were going to kill him. They probably already had something going to give him that much fear. But he literally committed suicide by fear because he was so freaked out the cops couldn't manage him. If he had been more present of mind, then he could have handled it. So here's an example, Ben, of how to handle that kind of book. You roll down the window and say, hi, officer, I'm really glad to see you. Wow, I've heard so much good about your police force, and I know that you're out here enforcing the law, and I just wanted to tell you a congratulations for doing such an excellent job. What can I do for you, officer? No, I haven't broken any law. I'm under the speed limit and everything is fine. 
Here, you want these papers? Here's all the papers that you want. Yeah. And with, I think put in each. if you're at ease, you can put the property. Yeah, I mean, that particular situation is a little, is a little hard to. I use strong examples intentionally. Yeah. Yeah, that, that particular example, you know, I think, yeah, no, <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm struggling a little bit with that example. I know. Look at how you feel right now, though. You're afraid of that cop in your mind right now. So take a deep breath. Um, recognize, no, there's no danger right now. In fact, there's no cop busting you right now. <laughs> it is not dangerous and everything is okay. So right now, wakey, wakey, right now, look at what's going on in the mind. Right now, recognize that because of some set of standards that we have about what cops are, we're, be, we're showing that fear. If you can rehearse in your mind a wholesome way of dealing with the cop, thinking about getting busted and thinking about, or at least getting stopped, busted is a little bit more like handcuffs, but you know, just a traffic stop. If you can rehearse, oh, hi, officer. Glad to hear you got your own duty. I hear you're on a really friendly police force and all the cops are just such marvelous characters. And then we're not afraid. So look how we get ourselves in the state of fear just by conceptualizations. That's a clear example right here. This is a learning moment. And there really are no cops here. Just the thought of one. So if that's the case, and look what happened with this, recognize that in the actual case, the actual cop there is not the cop. It's the cop in your mind that you just brought in just today, just now. Just now you had a cop in your mind. And if you're not careful, that's the cop that you'll respond to when a real cop is there. So you can change your concepts about cops. That's the change. That's the right effort is to change our attitude, to change our thoughts, to change the way that we feel in the body, to bring ourselves back to a state of comfort and ease and safety and security and satisfaction. But you can imagine, just imagine that that cop is there and you're completely satisfied that he's there. 
that he stopped you and you're completely satisfied that he stopped you. Gives you an opportunity to tell him what a marvelous human being he is and how grateful you are for him being out on the highway, keeping you safe. So in, in, the, <laughs> in the restructuring of some of these concepts, there is a rehearsal element of a walking, walking yourself through the, the situation or whatever your reaction is to it and seeing, you know, what would my habitual response or reaction be or what am I creating in my mind versus how am I reacting and responding or how do I want to react and respond? that we can in advance remove these hindrances so that then when the situation occurs we'll be ready for it because we're rehearsed imagine you walking out on stage to give a performance to a, uh, to a big crowd of people of 500 or more and you're completely unprepared the actor's nightmare huh that's the actor's nightmare yes yeah mm -hmm. i i have that dream regularly because i am um, i i i do some acting as well so um so well rehearsed yeah uh-huh that's it well rehearsed so that's what we're actually going to be doing with um, with the gladdening of the mind is we're going to rehearse. So if we can actually give a what we would call credible moment to ourselves while we're sitting there on the floor in the meditation hall. Then we can do that credible performance when we're in a crowd of 500 or in front of a cop. We can do because we're prepared and we prepared by rehearsing and rehearsing means that we do it over and over and over again like when someone is getting ready to uh, uh give a, a recital the right thing to do is instead of worrying about the recital practice and practice that one piece over and over and over and over and over and over again until you get it right and then you're confident that you can walk out on that stage, sit down in front of that piano and play that piece of music that you can play at home. So my my question is maybe around the the bypassing aspect of some of these things where it feels like, you know, there might be material things that can be done or can be shifted on a, you know, on a societal level or on, um, you know, some. Oh, you're trying to fix the cops. Yes, I understand that. Yeah. Yeah. That's what my view is. Let's fix the cops. <laughs> or, or, or something. Yeah. In terms yeah, of. Yeah. Or, right. With, 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 or with, Biden or, or Trump or the government or our church or whatever, our country. Whatever it is, we want to fix the outside so that we'll feel good on the inside. And the correct practice is let's get ourselves feeling good on the inside and rehearse that so that we can feel good when we're confronted with the outside world that we used to hate and wanted to fix. Now we're okay with it. Cool. 
but we have to practice. We have to rehearse because the old habits are strong. I don't know. I'm just thinking about like, it just feels like the alternative is resignation or like uh, throwing your hands up and saying, that's just the way it is. Ah, that's a loser's mentality. Right. You can throw your hands up and say, yeah, I can handle that. You can look. You can throw your hands up in the air. With different ways. I mean, you don't have to throw it up and be unhappy. You can throw the hands up in the air uh, in celebration. Yeah, I can handle that. That's their problem. That's not my business. I'm immune to that disease. Just because somebody is coughing in my face doesn't mean I have to catch their cold. So if someone's mentally coughing in my face doesn't mean that I have to get that sick. So when someone's having a pity party, you don't have to pity party with them. When somebody's angry, you don't have to get angry with them. But you would because we're susceptible to that kind of stuff and we're not well rehearsed to do the right thing. And so we do whatever we're in the habit of doing. Hmm. So this is now even more so back to the quality of right view, noble right view. Hmm. So that we can see the cop is not dangerous. Cops actually don't want to be dangerous. They just happen to uh, stop a whole bunch of people one after another that are freaked out. And so they're expecting that you're going to be freaked out too. And if you are freaked out, then that's the setting for most traffic stops. Two people freaked out. Your choice. Another one would be, how are you going to die? This is something that we can rehearse. What's going to be your last breath? What's you, what are you going to have on your mind when you have that last breath? Are you going to have gratitude, generosity on your mind? Are you going to have the desire for revenge? Something like the guy gets stabbed and as he's falling over from the sword uh, cut, he says, I'll see you in hell. Now, is that the attitude you want to die with? Feeling of revenge? I mean, you've just been fighting, you've been sword fighting with this guy, and now he stabbed you. <laughs> Are you going to die like the warrior? In fact, in the cowboy movies, there's an old story about the cowboy movies that the cowboy would rather die with his boots on which means that he's out in battle, he's in action. He doesn't want to get wounded and then lay into bed with his boots off and die. The idea is you're going to die. The question is, how are you going to handle it? 
just like the cops stopped you. It's possible that you could go the rest of your life and never get stopped by a cop. That's probably what's going to happen to me because I'm not going to go back to the U.S. and cops in Thailand don't do that kind of stuff. And I don't even drive anymore anyway. But one thing is for sure, even though I may never get stopped by a cop again, I will die. I haven't found a place on this island or any place else that I know of where I can go and stay safe right off into the next three, four, five thousand years. Everybody dies. How are you going to handle that? Just like when you are uh, a good uh, actor is going to know how he's going to handle when he walks out on stage. Because he's well rehearsed. This is one of the reasons why we call these skills to be developed. And even in the Anapanasati Sutra, it talks about thus one trains oneself. So that you rehearse yourself into being in a really good state. And then you rehearse to keep in that good state. Rehearsal, 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 rehearsal over and over and over again. That in fact, everything has to do with repetition. So a short little uh, rendition about repetition. That that's what poetry is all about. It's rhyme and meter. Rhyme and meter. In music, you have a tempo as well as a cadence. And that the tempo is set with repetition. The cadence is set with the chords. Which are also. What I mean by that, right, for progression. So let's look at the tempo for a moment. And a good example is Beethoven, because Beethoven was really, really careful. His whole thing, in fact, we studied Beethoven and how he wrote his music is that he would take a short theme. And he would refine that short theme and then repeat it over and over and over and over again. And a good example of that is, oh gosh, there's several of them. The one that I like the best, though, is um, the opening movement of the Fifth Symphony. Da, 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 da. Da, it's the same thing over and over and over and over again. So this is what we're going to do with our lives now. Instead of randomly going around making noise, we're going to start putting rhythm and meter and cadence into the way that we think and the way that we talk. And begin to repeat over and over and over again. The repetition is going to be of everything is safe, everything is secure, there's no place to go. And in fact, what these are is the repetition of wholesome thoughts. Rather than random mix of wholesome and unwholesome, mostly unwholesome. We're going to intentionally bring things in tune or bring things in meter so that there's repetition that you can tell. Another one that I like 
just a good example, is the girl from Empanema. You probably heard that song. Okay. And look at the repetition. Look at how many, it's that same little thing over and over and over again, the repetition of the tempo while the cadence is changing the notes. But it's the same rhythm over and over and over again. And so this is the way that we practice. This is what sati is all about, is to remember to come back into cadence, to remember to come back into tempo, to remember to repeat over and over again. And so that's the sati, is to remember to do it over and over and over again. Then one's right effort is to put it into um, the tempo. So that we do it over and over and over and over again. I'm sorry, I made a mistake there. That one's right effort is to bring it into cadence. The tempo is to remember and to do it over and over again. And then the cadence is that we're going to now have wholesome thoughts that are in tune, that are relating to one another, rather than just having random noise in the mind. And so we're going to start having wholesome thoughts. And so we're going to have our going back to the right view. We're going to start looking at the kind of thoughts that we have and then begin to modify and change those thoughts. Into wholesome thoughts that begin to remove the instructions that are keeping you from feeling the way that you would want to feel. Now I'm just I'm wondering with the wholesome thoughts doesn't it ever get into the the realm of arguing with yourself in a way or repression or you know Well those are all unwholesome things to do. That's what you're already doing. Hmm. And so seeing that you're doing that hmm. and come out of it instead of arguing with yourself say I don't have to know everything. I just need to know enough. And all I need to know is that it's okay to be satisfied. Right. So the counter is, in a sense, more wholesome thoughts. But it's yeah, wholesome. More wholesome. like it's speaking to yourself in a nurturing way, is what I'm Precisely getting. So, exactly. You're nurturing yourself. Everything is okay. Everything is fine. And so that's the new cadence. And we repeat it over and over and over again in a rhythm. Mm, that's very clear. It almost like you're, it's like you're interacting with yourself from a, like a wiser perspective. Mm -hmm. And a non-selfish perspective in the sense that the mind now becomes an object to be observed. The thoughts become an object to be observed rather than me and my thoughts. They're just thoughts. And that these thoughts that I used to think was me is actually not me because I can change the thoughts. And by changing the thoughts, I'm actually changing who I am. That a lot of people have the idea that that once a person is an adult or even even in childhood, that you are who you are. That's just Jim. 
or a leopard can't change his spots, or the fruit doesn't fall far from the tree, or boys will be boys. I mean, look at all these cliches of personality types. That once a personality type is a personality type, he's going to always be that personality type. So if the psychiatrist diagnoses somebody uh, as um, schizophrenic, then that label actually forces him to be schizophrenic. And that everybody has the idea when he goes into this hospital or the next or whenever they see that word schizophrenic as the diagnosis, they think that he's always going to be that way. To where no, the human being is quite fluid. All we have to do is change our habits, change our thoughts, change our attitude, and we're a different person. Mm. This is one of the good reasons why we want to ignore the past. Is why? Because now we're not who we were in the past. Back then, I had a different set of rules and standards and beliefs and behavior and ignorance. And so there would be behaviors that I had many, many years ago that I wouldn't do now. So why should I reflect upon that and say, oh, what a bad boy am I because I did that once? For in fact, the better thing to say is, that's not who I am now. I'm above that. That's not me. I'm something new. I'm a moving target. Fluid. With choices. Now, there's one last thing to add to this. If that's to completion of the Eightfold Noble Path with its right view, because once we have right view and right sati, and right effort running and working and circling around each other so that it works, then you're able to get yourself into that state of sukha is the Pali word for it. That sukha is actually quite opposite of the word dukkha. Because you are satisfied as opposed to being dissatisfied is the nature of the mind, the habit of the mind that people are dissatisfied when the cop comes. How can you be satisfied when the cop comes? How can you be happy to see him when he's stopping you in track? The answer is we have to rehearse being satisfied. Now, once we've rehearsed being satisfied, eventually we get the idea that, hey, I can be satisfied. I can, in my mental thought, handle any cop that comes. Now we're beginning to change something else, and that's the attitude, the attitude of I can do it, that I'm no longer a victim to the world. I'm a champion in this world. This is what we mean by the Buddha of being a lion, that you change your attitude from a loser's attitude of I can't handle that cop into the lion's position. Sure, I can handle that cop. He's a psychological being, and I've got all the psychological tools I need to manipulate him. If I can manipulate my own mind, if I've got the tools and the strength to manipulate my own mind, then I can have the tools to manipulate any weakling, any mental weakling who runs by. I can handle anyone. Okay, so Sukha is the opposite of Dukkha. Mm-hmm. Sukha is about being satisfied. Mm -hmm. 
dukkha is about being dissatisfied right. or you're craving wanting tanha how do you let go of the tanha ah there's various things that we can do one of them is uh in fact this is an e a very interesting one because it sometimes really impacts people and that is that there's a lot of things that you want you want this you want that i mean the the, the wanting mechanism is strong mm. and and it's kicked off by liking so mm. that any time that we like something we want it and not only that would we begin to make judgments about it that if i like it and i want it and i need it then it must be good for me or it must be good in general. This is where we get judgmental behavior. This is where that conceptualizations, the critical mind comes from. Now, the thing that we can do is to recognize that we're not going to get what we want, at least not all the time. On a regular basis, you're going to want things that you're not going to get. With wisdom, with understanding, and with um, uh, right view, and seeing that I can still be satisfied and not get what I want. Mm. That you can rehearse that, that you're not going to get what you want and you can still be satisfied. How? By practicing that. Just say, oh, I'm not going to get what I want, but I can be satisfied without it right now. I'll I'll be in a great state of pain and desire for it later. But right now I'm going to be satisfied without it. And then when that later comes, you can say that same thing. Later I'll be sad I'll be uh disappointed and unhappy, but right now I'm going to be satisfied with not getting it. Right. So it's it's decoupling the satisfaction, which can be taken care of by itself, from the craving, which mm -hmm. typically the two are like coupled or associated where like I'm not getting what I want I'm unhappy or I'm getting what I want I'm happy whereas the happiness can be taken care of by itself the satisfaction and ease and comfort and safety precisely because it was all mental anyway all of the wanting and the longing and the unsatisfying because you didn't get what you want is all mental now we can add a new ingredient in there and say yeah I'm not going to get what I want but I can be satisfied anyway then we can back it up a step. And the step that we back it up to is, yeah, I like it, but I don't want it. Part of the reason I don't want it is because I know I can't have it. And if I want it and, and uh, I grasp and cling for it and still don't have it, then that's dukkha. But I can be satisfied first with wanting it and not getting it. And then later I can be satisfied with liking it and not wanting it. Yeah. Yeah. And just allow yourself that you like that beautiful you car or that beautiful girl. You like her. She, I mean, look how hard she works. She painted herself. She got $15 worth of makeup. I mean, she's really dolled up. Maybe got five or $600 worth of clothes on. She's intentionally beautiful. Allow yourself to see that she's beautiful, but you don't have to warn her. 
She can be beautiful, but she doesn't have to be attractive. And what does attractive means? That you're attracted to her. She's like a magnet. She's sucking you in. But you don't have to. Your choice. You can just recognize how beautiful she is without desiring her or wanting her. Yeah, it just feels so habitual or automatic in a sense. Mm -hmm. Your choice, though, wakey, wakey. And recognize that just because you want something doesn't mean that you have to be dissatisfied and disappointed when you don't get it. In fact, now with right view and right discernment and wisdom, we begin to be selective about the things that we want. And then later we even become more selective about the things that we like. Mm. Really? Mm -hmm. So you're talking about controlling Vedana in a sense of like, well, that's what we're talking about anyway. If you can control your Vedana to get yourself into a state by talking to yourself into it, of feeling satisfied by being comfortable, that being safe and secure right now and do that over and over and over again, then that's actually the training of how you feel. So, yes, you can control how you feel. But the way that you learn to control how you feel is by learning to control how you think. And also learning to control the body, especially in the sense of how you breathe and how you experience the body with all of these emotional sensations that are associated with the body. And we become alert and awake and aware of that. A really clear example of recognizing anger is when you recognize that you're speaking loudly. And if you're and if you're sharp, just one outburst, ah! and that's it. You say, "Wait well, a minute, that was an angry part." <laughs> yeah, I guess it just feels so tight between the experience and the reaction to it, or the liking or the disliking. It feels so like so tightly coupled. Well, it's not tight to talk about it quickly. So I shot it. Maybe I'll mute myself. Yeah, that's all. So yes, that's it. It's fast. It's a it's a step by step action that happens in the mind. It's actually got a poly name for it. It's called Petita Samapada, which is the cause and effect relationship. You give rise to our understanding of that we see something and then we have a feeling about it. The feeling is feeling of liking or disgust or whatever like that. And then that disgust brings about the feeling of I want to get rid of this. And now I'm dissatisfied because I have to put up with something that I have decided was disgusting. 
Now, the reality is it may not be disgusting at all. We just decided that it was disgusting. So we can back up things even further in that regard. First, we can recognize that what I want, I'm not going to get and I can be satisfied. Then we can recognize that if I see something that I like, doesn't mean that I have to want it. We can back up a little step a little bit before that and recognize that our liking and not liking is based upon uh, uh, the results of our perception. So that we actually judged it to be based upon some sort of criteria to be disgusting. Where we actually just made that up. Where did we make it up? We made it up out of all the old stuff that we're carrying around, like all the rules and all the shoulds and all the, the right ways to do things. And this thing didn't match up to our set of rules and therefore we've labeled it as disgusting and then we don't like it. But if we recognize that I've called it disgusting because I've got criteria about what is disgusting and this passes the criteria. If I change my criteria, if I change the way that I judge things, then I don't have to see it as disgusting. An example of that would be Donald Trump. A lot of people see him as disgusting and they could just see him as a clown instead. Their choice. Oh, you're, you're muted. I was just saying, uh, help me better understand this. The criteria and the, the judgments, where would that fall in Paticca Samapada? Into the Sankara and uh -huh. in the Vinaya or in the Nama Rupa. The Nama Rupa is taking, let us say, the image of Donald Trump, the input. That's Vinaya, that's the consciousness. And then as I'm bringing Donald Trump in, I'm going to set a set of criteria or standards which I have in my past. Okay, some people may be because of their past, but to say that they're a fashion editor, they're going to look at the way he's dressed. Someone else is a linguist, they're going to be listening to the kind of words that he uses. Others are looking for uh, him telling them that it, giving them justification for their being for their being angry. And so they'll get what they're looking for. So everyone is going to look at the image of Donald Trump differently based upon their past. If you recognize that you can see him as he is now without judging him with the rules or the criteria that you set up from the past, now you can be here now completely. So that the way that we are actually looking at the world is very close to the way the world really is, as opposed to the world seen through the filter of our standards. And the standards, I'm just trying, I'm trying to go through the wheel of things. So the Sankaras would be the like the formations or the like these ideas that we might have, these conceptions or like. Instead of calling it formations, let's call it a pile. Pile. A pile of rules, a pile of the past, a pile of old observations, a pile of uh, everything that we picked up in our lives and carried around in a great big knapsack, or let us say that it's uh, a junkyard. 
Mm. Yeah, I don't, I think the way that it's been described to me is like grooves, like old grooves, like um, old patterns, certainly, exactly. In other words, the, the tune that you're most likely to hum in your head is mm. a tune that you've heard before. Mm. Mm. Right. And so, how does Namarupa differ then? Namarupa would be name and form. And okay, well, the form, the form comes in from the outside. Right. That's real. That's what the word rupa means. It's a physical object. Right. Okay. Um, in fact, one of the ways of looking at it is uh, uh, jata rupa is the word for silver. It's a physical form. Right, like by the way, gold is rajata or tong, rajatong, and that's the, the word tong is the word for uh, gold in Thai. So tong is is gold. And Raja means the king's gold. So a big pile of gold as opposed to a coin that in fact, they didn't even have gold coins in the time of the Buddha, The gold was always kept in bullion form. That's king's gold. Okay. But Raja um, Ta and uh, Jata Rupa, the Rupa now is the word in, ta in uh, uh, India for the word rupee. Yeah. That's their currency, okay? That's that physical object, that's the coin, or that's that banknote. And that we see everything in our lives, every tree, every object, every pebble, every sidewalk, every car on every street is rupa, is physical objects. Another way of looking at it is the, uh, the Buddha rupa is a statue of the Buddha. It's a physical manifestation of, an, of a mental image. So an icon, or even an emoji, or an avatar, those are all rupas. They're physical objects that are supposed to mean something. The question is, is that the meaning is actually an emotional, mental meaning, not an actual meaning. And the meaning then is that those grooves, those sankaras, we add meaning to the rupa, and the meaning that we give it is by giving it a name. We name it, and the naming of it owns it. In other words, we take anything, any information, any piece of uh, uh, sight, any input, and we put a handle on it. So that we can carry it around, we can manage it. It's like, how would you like it if somebody gave you a suitcase without any handles? How would you manage a suitcase without a handle, right? And so we want to be able to handle things by putting a handle on it. That handle is the name of it. Yeah. So we conceptualize it, we make it into a concept. By putting that handle on it, we make it into a mental concept. So the question is, what kind of handle are we going to put on it? 
Are we going to put on a soft fuzzy handle for us to be comfortable carrying it around? Or are we going to put a sharp uh, damaged handle? This maybe got some metal pieces exposed or worse than that, razor blades in it. So that when we carry it by that handle, it's painful. So whatever suitcase comes in in the mind, the question is, what kind of handle are you going to put on it? Because that's what's going to give you the feelings about it. It's the name that you put on things. Okay. And we get that handle making out of a set of standards or set of rules about handles. That's the same car. How do we make handles? What handles are you making to put on the objects that you're given? Right. And so that handle that we put on it, that's what we have our feelings about, not the object of itself, but we've got the two confused. The object that we're carrying around or the handle that we're carrying it around with. So it's like how we relate to it or how we interact with it or how we respond or um, I'm thinking that's I'm... the handle. Exactly. How do we handle things? Right. Uh... Oh, it's our relationship, <laughs> relationship to it. Mm -hmm. What's our relationship to it? That relationship is the handle we put on it, and that relationship or that handle that we put on it is based upon our handle-making abilities, and our handle-making abilities are the old habits, the old rules, the old specifications for handles. Right. And so if we only know how to make one kind of handle, then we have to put that one handle on all sizes of suitcases. A tiny little suitcase has to have the same big handle as the great big suitcase has the same little handle. But the big suitcase, that handle is little. And for the very tiny suitcase, like let us say a matchbox, and you've got a handle the size of your hand, you're trying to put that on the matchbox. And so that's another way of understanding it is the way that we handle things needs to be done with wisdom rather than our, our standard set of handles that we have already on hand. You can put new handles on things, new handles that actually fit. Guess what? When we start getting good at that, we begin to get into confidence. And there's a new kind of handle on it, and that new kind of handle is the attitude: I can handle this. I know how to make handles now. And so, can you describe how to make a handle? Like, how would I make a handle on something if I had a concept? All right. The uh, here's an example of that, and that is two people are standing on the street corner, looking across the street, and they see someone coming down the street dressed in a certain way. Okay. And each one of them sees that person and has a completely different reaction. Right. Based upon the way the person is dressed. 
So I might say, I might have a very judgmental perspective. Mm-hmm. Say, oh, like, look at what that person's wearing, you know, because maybe I'd be embarrassed to wear that. And then another person might go, wow, like, look at that person expressing themselves. They might have a, isn't that neat to, you know, show who you are or, you know, uh-huh. I wish I uh, could. How about a particular brand of sneakers? Yeah, or. And somebody likes Nikes and the other guy like Jordan. So depending yeah. upon that guy coming down the street, what kind of shoes he's wearing. Yeah, that's simpler. That's simpler, yeah. Uh-huh. All right. Or another one is, is that the person coming down the street is in a nun's habit. And one of them was beaten by the nuns when he was in school. And the other one is uh, a seminary student who is looking for ordination. Now, each one of them seeing the nun is going to have a different view of that nun. They're going to view the person in a different way. So our views now in that regard are ordinary views based upon a set of rules and noble viewing would just be looking at the person the way that they are right now, rather than putting our own past experiences upon them. So it's like the lens that we're looking at things through, like rose colored glasses or, Mm -hmm. you know, you're skewing things in a certain way. Precisely. Or what kind of handle you're going to put on that nun and her habit. How are you going to handle her? How are you going to uh, manage her? What kind of mental handle are you going to put on her in the way that you're going to relate to her? So one guy is going to be very happy to see her and ask her where she was ordained and uh, who her teachers are. And the other one is going to try to get a stick in retaliation to what the other nuns had done to him. Wow. Wow. I'm just thinking because that would really shift the way, like how you relate, how you connect, how you interact with everything. Everything. That you can remember the way that you're reacting to it, your choice. If you can remember to wake up, take a look, see things directly. Now you've got complete choice over how you're going to respond and react both uh, in your behavior and in the way you feel. So now my question is back to the right view, and that is what is the right way? <laughs> the right way to the to... answer to that is a skill to be developed right. that I can't give you a one sentence or one paragraph or one encyclopedia that's going to give you a set of rules on how to do things that you're going to have to to learn just to fly by the seat of your pants. (laughs) That's what wisdom is all about, being able to handle anything. Okay, I see. Right, so okay, that, that to me feels like the wise approach because every situation is slightly different and requires you to change how you're it requires you to do the dance with it that's right Mm. 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 
<laughs> Thanks, Tomarato. Yes, okay. So, Zach, we'll talk to you later. Let's go and put this into practice, into your practice of Anapanasati. This whole idea of right view is just the right way of looking at it, which means a fresh, new way of looking at it, rather than comparing it to a set of standards or concepts. Right. Right. Thank you. Thank you. One's noble, one's ordinary. So we got to come out of the ordinary way of looking at it and see it fresh, see it new. Thank you. This has been a delightful conversation. I really enjoyed this. Likewise, likewise. Thank you. Thank you. So we'll see you again, I hope. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. So, um, one last thing, and that is, is that I would invite you to come and join us on the Skype uh, Sanghas, the US and the UK, because we've got a lot of like-minded guys there now, and some females. Hmm. And we can learn from each other that, in fact, there's a, there's a, uh, a mutual slap-happy party going on where people are able to uh, bring their crap in and everybody slaps them around and they wind up being quite jovial and conflict resolution and miracles and all kinds of stuff going on. So I'd invite you to come join the fun. Yeah, will do, will do. Make some friends. That's what the Dhamma is all about, is making friends. Yeah. Nurturing yourself, making friends with the inside and then finding like-minded people to be friends with on the outside. That's the Dhamma and the Sangha. So come join us on the Sangha. Will do, will do. All right, we'll see you. Take care. Okay, bye-bye.